This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie sits down with Louis Damani Jones, a fellow at the Gephardt Institute for Civic and Community Engagement located at Washington University in St. Louis. Lewis produced the Ark and Dove podcast, which investigated the complex dynamics of race and religion in America through the lens of the Black Catholic Church. In this episode, Deacon Charlie and Lewis discuss the Black Catholic experience as it relates to both the unity and diversity within the church. They also touch on ways to live an integrated life of faith, how to break down barriers in evangelization, and share their thoughts on how the Second Vatican Council and Pope Francis have engaged with the modern world. I've always thought that the Catholic Church is this is there's no institution and there I don't think there can be any institution that has the unity and diversity that Catholicism has. It just simply does. It cannot exist because what keeps it together is the Holy Spirit. Right. So God is literally, you know, creating this unity and diversity that no man, no person can construct like through any kind of process or anything. This is Living the Call. Louis Damani Jones, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm honored to be here. So it's a good ring, man. It's got a good ring, that, that name, you know, especially with the middle name thrown in there. My middle name is Darian, but I don't use it, which, but it's a kind of a cool name too. You know, I should probably think about it. The only reason, it's a funny, I get that a lot. The only reason I use my middle name is because for most of my life, I only went by my middle name. So some people only know me as Damani and other people only know me as Louis, like post-college, because my dad has the same name as me, Louis. So, um, and my grandfather as well. So that's why I was never Lewis. Like there was always another Lewis. So I was always Damani. And so when I got older, people were like, oh, your name is Lewis. And so I now have to put like the full, like Lewis Damani. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It's cool. If you, if you hyphenate it, you could be like, uh, you know, a, th- uh, a star of like stage and screen. You know oh, yeah, I mean? actor. It, yeah, it's an actor yeah. name with the hyphenation. Oh, yeah. For sure. Or it could be like a, you know, like an like an academic, you know, like you've got white papers on. And you, <laughs> probably, and you probably do do some of that. I don't know. You might already be there. I know you write a lot. No, yeah, that, I definitely am not. I'm not there yet. I'm not I'm not a star academic uh, for sure. So, um, yeah, but that's funny. You also live in St. Louis. A lot of Louis going on. Exactly. See, it would be confusing. Yeah, I live in the St. Louis area. Um actually don't live I so at times I've I've lived throughout the metropolitan area. So for those who don't know, St. Louis is on the Mississippi River bordering uh it's on the border between Missouri and Illinois. So St. Louis actually has a metro region that that's over two states. So a lot of people mm. may say they're from St. Louis but actually live on the Illinois side. And so I've lived on both Missouri and Illinois side, both in the Archdiocese of St. Louis, and then it borders the Diocese of Belleville, which is the bottom third of Southern Illinois. So currently I live over on the Illinois side. Um, but yeah, St. Louis is it's such a, it's such a dynamic place, a very Catholic, very Catholic city and region. A lot of history. It really is. Yeah. It's, it's really, yeah. um, it's an amazing place to, to live your faith. I love the inner, well, for, but my first question is what percentage of people living in St. Louis do you think know that the city's named after a Catholic uh, European King? A lot of people now, <laughs> because there's actually a huge oh, really? controversy. Yeah. There was a big controversy a few years back. There was a lot of stuff going on around statues. And there was a statue of St. Louis the King in the in Forest Park, which is one of the biggest parks in the country. And mm. it also is like this major centerpiece of the city. And a big part of it right outside on, on this place called Art Hill is this huge statue of St. Louis King of France on a horse. And there was a big protest movement to take it down. Um, actually, it was from uh, a activist from the Muslim community uh, who was saying like, you know, the King of France, he's not really a saint and all this kind of stuff. And so it was actually a big deal. It was like covered, and then the mayor of St. Louis spoke out against, spoke out, and actually defended the statue. 
Damn. And so it was like a big deal. And so now a lot of people know <laughs> about, about who he is, but, um, so yeah, but yeah, I have a nope. deep devotion to St. Louis King of France, um, and his, his story as a lay person who was deeply about his faith and uh, impacting those experiencing poverty as well. You know, what's really cool about him is that cause, cause it is, it is kind of trippy in the sense that you don't have a lot of people who had all of the material trappings, the wealth and the authority, the power, yeah. if you will. Um, who were able to live the kind of virtuous life that he did. I remember when, when, when his feast day comes up, my wife and I pray the liturgy of the hours every morning mm. and we do the office of readings. And so like you can read the letters he wrote to his son yeah, it's big, yeah. about it's like big. how to be a man and all this stuff. And it's like, it's probably harder, um, you know, with all of surrounded by all of these material trappings and people serving you hand and foot and whatever to hold on to that kind of virtue, you know, in a way it's a, it's a challenge in a way of our age. I heard a homily once where the preacher was basically saying that he's like, listen, we revere our saints and we should, but the reality of it is, is that in most cases, it's kind of harder for us. If you're living in a monastic cell in the sixth century, somewhere in Syria, and it's like you, you know, you got, it's you and God, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's hard. It's a different kind of hard, but like now when it's like, you know, we're, we're living in a world of full of distraction like there's a lot of things to take your eye off the ball. And in a way it's kind of harder. I don't know. So that's one of the things I think about with him is that he had some of that stuff all around him. Yeah, that's a good point. And actually I hadn't, I mean, of course I thought about how powerful his example is and obviously the influence of St. Francis on his life. And, um, and I think, you know, whenever you hear these stories of the Kings or Queens who also reach sainthood, you can't help but be like, wow, like respect that. You know, you hear the, the, the phrase, you know, um, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and these people are not just presidents or elected officials. They're absolute monarchs with They're unlimited monarchs. power and authority. I mean, so yeah, the fact that people would go out of their way to to do something where really they could get away with whatever they wanted, essentially get away with murder. Yeah, yeah, for and, sure. it's, and it's like to hear people like, "Hey, we're going to take these people in and, and eat with them, and and like eat with the poor of of my community, and all these things." Very countercultural, and I think he's also like you were just saying a saint for our time when we have so many distractions and other things, mm. material possessions. Now mm. we probably have a better standard of living. I don't want to go too far, but we probably have a great standard of living even compared to what he experienced. I mean, with everything True. we have and technology True. and all these things, the time and things that we have taken off our plate with all that. I think he's actually a saint. We can maybe ask for his spirit of poverty, even amongst material uh, opulence and, and um, in all the material trappings. So that's a great point. Mm-hmm. I that. The other cool thing about St. Louis, and I think you touched on it a second ago is this, kind of cultural point of intersection, right? It's, it's oftentimes not thought about in the same way that you might say, you know, Detroit or New Orleans or New York or places like that. But, you know, especially the kind of confluence of black culture with mm-hmm. American culture. And, and then you got this other layer of Catholic culture, right, for our conversation. But it's this, there's this such a cool scene there of all these different things going on and this overlap. And it's kind of in the middle of the country. And yeah. I don't know, it's like a, it's like an epicenter. And I think a lot of people don't think of, about it in that way. Yeah. I actually do think about it in that way. It's interesting you said that sure because it is like, it's both in the borders of like, of, of East and West, right. It was kind of a gateway to the West also North and South. Like historically mm. it was kind of this dividing line. And that's why there's court cases and many controversial things as it relates to like slave crossings and many things about that because of this border of Illinois. And it's so it's always been at this intersection point. It's always been this this place where it's in the middle of a lot of things. It's also kind of this mixture of southern culture and northern in a way. And that's another cultural thing, even within black culture, African-American mm-hmm. culture. 
you see that very deep Southern influence. Like a lot of people heard about Nelly, that rapper Nelly, Country sure, Grammar. Course. Like that was like a big album. And he was like this idea of him being kind of country from St. Louis. Now a lot of people, yeah. they interesting. But yeah, we're, St. Louis as a city is actually surrounded by rural area. I mean, mm. even um, the counties that surround St. Louis County are essentially rural and exurban. Um, and so, yeah, it's actually cornfields, like right outside, close by where I live, there's cornfields stretching out <laughs> everywhere you go from here on through Southern Illinois. So, yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. And it's a place I think a lot of people don't realize just the rich, yeah, intersections, cultural traditions, um, historical impact it's had on the country and, and the fact that it's in the middle of so many things. Well, you could tell you're you're kind of a man for the place, right? Okay. Um, because <laughs> you you got this. Um, I want to talk about a bunch of things. I mean, you got this really cool background in the sense you've got a sort of professional background, you know, health therapy, but you're also like involved in all these different organizations. You're a fellow at um, at uh, the Gephardt Institute for uh, Civic and Community Engagement. You write. You've got a podcast uh, or you produced a podcast, kind of a narrative podcast called Ark and Dove I want to get into. But mm-hmm. a big area of your focus is this kind of black Catholic experience, right? Which I'm always on about, right? Because I think that, you know, one of the things, in fact, you actually touched on it in one of the articles, I think that you uh, wrote at some point, maybe I got this wrong, but I think you did a piece on a W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm-hmm. And you talked about... Um, this kind of uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, 200% kind of, uh, what is it called? Like a double, double consciousness. Double consciousness. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that idea of living in the hyphen, like that's me too, right? Mm-hmm. It's like 100% Latino, 100% American, and you got 100% Catholic. I mean, it's 300 percenters really, but it's this idea of kind of having feet in all worlds. And that's why I think St. Louis is a backdrop, which is a foot in all worlds, right? North, South, East, West, black, white, Catholic, not like it's, you're such a guy for that, for that universe. There's a bunch of stuff that we can get into, Mm. but I'm just curious as a starting point, like when did you realize there even was a Catholic, a black Catholic experience? Like when that even hit you? That's a great um, question. Actually, that experience hit me later. Um, So, you know, for context, my, uh, my mom is Catholic. Um, Both my parents are African-American. My mom is Catholic and my dad was maybe Catholic at one point. I don't know. He doesn't really even know, um, but has like had a lot of transitions. And, um, you know, I was raised, I wasn't really raised, I was raised Catholic, I'll say. I went to mass and and things like that, but it was very tangential to my life. For even Mm. deeper context, um, I was born actually in New York. I was born in uh, Manhattan, an area called Harlem. Um, And my mom- yeah, my mom and my dad and my godmother and my godfather actually helped to start a, a, a house called Stand Up Harlem, um, which was a place for people who were formerly incarcerated, experiencing homelessness, and had HIV AIDS. My mm. dad has HIV AIDS, um, has had mm. it my whole life. Um, and um, and so it was actually informed by Catholicism. So it actually come out of this movement called the Emmaus Movement. Sure. And so I was my really, dad was in that too. Well, what'd you say? My dad was in the was in the mass movement. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's really interesting. Yeah, and so like that deeply informed Father David Kirk, who was um, you know, the priest who uh, pioneered a mass house in Manhattan, was also on the board of Stand Up Harlem. He was a founding board member of Stand Up Harlem. So him and my dad worked closely together. And so oh, wow. my my dad was influenced by, uh, my family was influenced by a social justice kind of oriented Catholicism. And growing up, I didn't really have a lot of faith, deep deep faith. But it was kind of a lot of social justice orientation present there. 
And mm. so actually, I didn't really have a consciousness of this of a black Catholic experience per se. Um, like until I was probably I had my reversion experience, which we can get into mm. later. But growing up, I kind of I recognized the fact that if I went to a, a parish, mostly it was not African-Americans. I actually remember experience when I was young. I was really young. We were in Alton, Illinois, um, again, a part of the metropolitan St. Louis area. And I went to a, uh, we went to a, a church and when we were walking in, one of the women there who uh, was opening the door, we didn't typically go to this church. Um, she was like, are you all in the right place? And we're like, yeah. What? <laughs> um, and, and it was my mom doing the interaction. Shaking, shaking and, my head, Louis, shaking she, my head. Yeah, and, then, and then she was like, it's great. We need more of y'all here. And um, it, I remember that for some reason, like it wasn't like it, it, I felt like deeply hurt or anything, but it was just like a weird, yeah. you know, it was just those, those types of interactions. Um, but other than that, I didn't really, I, I typically, on some of the things like that, I didn't really have an experience of like black Catholic. Like I just kind of felt yeah. like Catholic or whatever. Um, so yeah. And when I got older and I had my reversion experience, I started to just learn about, and then there, there was always a tension I'll say too, with the fact that most people, um, even within my family, like my deeper family structure were Protestant. And so like we would go yeah. to like a Baptist church or whatever. And it was kind of like this, like trans-denominational experience of like kind of listening to Kirk Franklin or like this kind of Protestant hymns. And it, it just, it, it just kind of was a part of the air of like this deeper black cultural experience. Um, but the, it, it, the idea of black Catholic identity in itself wasn't there. Um, and when I got older, I just learned that there was a, that there was black Catholic churches and that there was like this whole tradition of people who were African-American trying to reconcile, like, what does this really mean? Like to be authentically black and authentically Catholic, what do we keep? Like, what do we maintain? What's, what's culture and what's faith and all of those wrestlings. I didn't really interact with that literature until yeah. I was older, but it really provided a lot of rich, um, a lot of rich content for me to kind of chew on. One of the priests who, as I was coming back into my faith, was really influential for me. And he also um, did my wedding. Uh, <laughs> he was one of the con celebrants of my wedding, Father Joseph Brown. He did his PhD at Yale, African-American um, studies there and American studies at Yale. He's a poet, um, a Jesuit priest. And um, he wrote a lot on African-American spirituality. And we would just talk and like share and like his thing about, you know, Sister Thea Bowman also who he knew and just like how oh, he's yeah. reconciling all those things. So just really getting to engage with that helped me a lot to just think differently about how culture interacts with faith. Um, yeah. yeah. So I didn't really think about those things until I was older though. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's so much there. The, one of the things I think about almost immediately to that lady who greeted you at the door at this yeah. parish, you know, is, is like the importance there. There's a line in the Psalms and I'm going to forget where it is, but about, uh, it's a prayer to God um, to send a guard to our to our mouths, right? To to stand and govern our tongue, so our tongue can't be used as a weapon. And that's one of the thoughts that I think about when I think about that, because oftentimes we don't recognize the impact that our first words have with people. You know, there's all this like social media tension around Karens and all this stuff. Let me tell you, one of the characteristics of a Karen is somebody who starts the conversation without saying hello. Like that's mm. one of the characters. There's many, but that's one of the, it's like, you know, somebody brings their phone out and gets in your face and asks you why your dog, you didn't pick up after your dog. Like saying hello to somebody and greeting them first before you offer any other kind of instruction or feedback is a key thing. Mm. Right. And I know that this woman tried to make it right at the end. It's like, we need more folks that look like you. 
And she was probably expressing a, you know, a heartfelt thing. She sure, yeah. didn't say it right, but, but it's just, that's one of the things I thought about. The other thing is, you know, I've learned so much and I know so little still, but I've learned so much about the black Catholic experience from people that I've had on the show. I've had um, actually one of your neighbors, Monsignor Eugene Morris was mm -hmm. on this show. We, we rapped for like four hours yeah. about <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Sister Josephine Garrett was on the show. My oh, friend yeah. Roxy, my friend Roxy Beckles out here in LA. And everybody has this like journey, just like you've kind of talked about, mm -hmm. right? And then like with uh, Monsignor Eugene Morris, it was like a journey of looking at things and recognizing that that wasn't it. Like for him, it was this whole idea of the patrimony of the African continent, right? So that idea where it, it seemed logical in the sense that, yeah, we're going to kind of, you know, incorporate some of these things, but it also wasn't his experience. So it's like, that wasn't something for him to recover. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? In order to live as American Catholicism, he's like, I don't have to become African. You know what I mean? To be an American Catholic and just other things. But there's so much there that you go through when you look at this and go like, okay, what is authentically Catholic, authentically kind of like part of this cultural experience? Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a deep topic. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's deep. And I think it's, it also intersects with how we even think about how we think about race. And so like, even what you said, Father Eugene Morris um, was saying about that, you know, I think um, the reality is like what it means to be black and Catholic or black Catholicism, I think is a complex thing because yeah, you can be like Father Eugene Morris and be deeply devoted to the Latin mass. And some people would say that that's not really like black Catholic. Like you should be like having a certain mass where it's like using this certain lead me, guide me hymnal and, you should be like, you know, there's certain devotions that you may do. And then that's really, truly what it means to be black and Catholic. And that also, that kind of is like the opposite problem. Now you're saying, now you're kind of putting into a box, like you have to be this certain way. Right. And really, I think, I like what he, he says about his own experience. Um, the reality is that the African-American experience is not an African experience. I mean, it was at one point, but really the genesis of African-American culture came in slavery. And that really mm. created this mm. mix of African influence, but also yeah. American influence, Southern American in particular, often influence that really created the, the cradle that generated a new culture. A new mm. culture was created out of that time frame and out of that yeah. confluence of cultures. And so mm. like, but yeah, if you were in the North, if you lived in a certain place, it wasn't monolithic. It never has been monolithic, right? Um, there was a shared experience that created a culture, but it's always been a dialogue about you know, what, you know, how do we live this? There's even movements at different times, like a movement called the New Negro Movement, all these different movements about how do we navigate being American, being in modern times, um, you know, post-slavery, how do we navigate our identities as African-Americans? That's always been a question. And so I think in the church, we always have to, as well, facilitate that dialogue and not try to create a box that says like, okay, if you are this culture, then this is how you need to worship or live. Sometimes in church circles, we we have to talk about groups because we're like trying to encourage more groups or we're trying yeah. to facilitate dialogue with groups. But I think we always have to be careful of not creating a caricature of the complexity mm. of what it means to live a certain experience. It's always yeah. evolving. It's never just the static situation. Yeah, preach it. It's 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 kind of a it's a it's a it's a fine line, right? It's a struggle because I deal with this a lot because I preach and teach a lot on the Latino church. Mm. And there's this tug of war, right? One side is you want to actually highlight some of the the strengths, the depth, the characteristics, the struggles, 
the reality, the perspectives Mm -hmm. of people from certain communities. So like that's one push. On the other side, you want to advance the sense of being Catholic, the true Catholicity, you know, means that this is the universal faith and that these patrimonies as unique and interesting as they are Mm -hmm. in a way belong to all of us, right? They belong to all of us, right? So it's a principle of solidarity. We have the religious education Congress here in Anaheim every year. I don't know if you've ever been, um, I'm going to, I'm going to be speaking this, this, this next year there. And they always have these kind of cultural, um, liturgies, Mm -hmm. right? So they'll have a Vietnamese mass, African mass. They'll have, um, you know, obviously Spanish. They'll have all the Eastern rites. They'll have, and it's like, to me, that's, that's like the all-star game. You know what I mean? You get to go and you get to experience all these different things, Mm -hmm. but they, in, yes, you're not, you know, I'm not, uh, Chaldean. Like my family is not from the Middle East. So Mm -hmm. I get that. But at the same time, when I go there, I'm, I'm being authentically Catholic I'm authentically encountering the Eucharist. I'm authentically praying to God. And so it, it belongs to me in a way, right? So there's always this, this, this tug of war between the, the, the way that we need to emphasize and highlight the gifts of these cultural experiences. But also if you go too far, you end up sort of saying, this is not for you. It's only for them mm-hmm. or whatever. And then caricature is exactly what it becomes. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's beautiful actually. And I, I always thought that the Catholic Church is this is there's no institution and there I don't think there can be any institution that has the unity and diversity that Catholicism has. It just simply does it cannot exist because what keeps it together is the Holy Spirit, right? So God is literally, you know, creating this unity and diversity that no man, no person can construct like through any kind of process or anything. And I think that's, you know, you highlighted it perfectly. You know, you can go to a Ruthenian Byzantine, you can go into like this this experience which is so different than, you know, your cultural background. And it is, you, you're supposed to be there. You belong there. It's not like mm. you're an imposer, like or you're, you're appropriating that. No, you actually, this is a part of your heritage. That's as well. right. You're, yeah. That's a good way to say it. You belong there. And yeah, just like we, we read the saints. I mean, how many saints do we read that are only from our own culture? I mean, we, <laughs> we read saints from across all of time and, and locations and context. And what do we do? We have a common experience with them because we're, mm. we're in, you're united in the Holy spirit and, and the Holy spirit is the one who, in all these different cultural expressions and all these different ways that they speak and the language that they use, we're still having this shared experience of, you know, kingdom, the kingdom of God breaking into our earth and that we're sharing that in different languages and different cultural experiences, but that's a uniting experience. And Mm. I think that the church is, that's why the church is really this unique vessel for creating broader unity across the world, because we are the only, we are the solution. The church is the solution. There is no other program that will ever compete with, what the Holy Spirit is doing. <laughs> um, so that is the answer. Amen. Yeah, it's a, the church is a miracle, mm-hmm. I mean, is what it is. I mean, it's, uh, I, I, I always, um, I'm always struck when people talk about the church in kind of a unidimensional way, right? So they want to talk about structurally mm-hmm. or whatever, hierarchically, the politics of the church or things like that. But you don't get to do that with the church because it's just, that's a misapprehension of what the church actually is, right? It's supernatural, it's material, it's physical, it's spiritual, it's, you know, it's it's miraculous in the sense of look at it on historical terms, right? I mean, we should have gone out of business long yeah, time right. ago, <laughs> long time ago, my friend, with all of the different ups and downs culturally and persecution and 
and just stupidity. People just, you know, like you want to check, you know, inefficiency, go sit in a deanery meeting or chancery meeting (laughs) one time and go like, how are we surviving? It's crazy. Like it's, it's literally crazy. So it is all this thing, all these things, the image I've used to describe it sometimes when people hit me with that, it's like, oh, well, the church is a man-made institution. I'm like, well, hang on, time out. And what the image I like to give is like, you know, cause everybody, I think most people can relate to being on like a, um, you know, on, on a bluff overlooking like a city mm-hmm. or they can at least understand that picture. It's like looking at a, a land, a skyline at night, right? New York, mm-hmm. Detroit, St. Louis, you know, there, you, you Google these cities and you'll see a Google image of like, you know, that city at night. And imagine sitting on a bluff and looking out at that image. Right. And it's in a way it's perfect, right? It's perfect to the extent that it's, you know, perfection within the context of a city, right? It's got, you know, lights and the buildings all look to, you know, properly dimensionalized. And you just look at this thing and it's like perfect. But then if you grab a telescope and you zoom in to a building or even through a window and check out what's going on in an apartment or in a house, you're going to see some messed up stuff sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's what it is. And that is the closest I've been able to explain the church because from that distance, she is the spotless bride of Christ. That's the supernatural element. But she's composed of people like you and me who oftentimes, you know, get in the way of the Holy Spirit. And so, but both of these realities are existing simultaneously. That's a beautiful image. That's a really, I, I really, I was going with you there. I was with you. <laughs> that was a beautiful image. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it is tough because, yeah, there's the structural realities. The church has had, had does have a structure and it has had you mm. know, different ways that it lived that structure out. And people critique that in many ways. But I think as Catholics, we always have to defend the reality and teach because this is a part of evangelization. People have to understand this is not just, you're not just joining a club. No, this is the this is heaven connecting heaven and earth. This is the this is the gateway into heaven, basically, um, on earth. And yes, it's made up of people who have committed sins. Um, who that's actually a part of their spiritual practice. If they're really a saint, is recognizing their sinfulness. So nobody's pretending that we're not. Um, mm. You know, it's it's just the reality of helping people to understand. Know you're connecting to Jesus. Like even if you're mm. encountering a broken person in, in in a broken church, then maybe that has had committed sins or, a, or whatever it may be. You're still connecting to Jesus. This is Jesus here. And all the brokenness you're seeing is not Jesus. It's human. And you're broken yeah. too. Join us. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Join us and That's grow. Right. Like, um, and yeah, I mean, I think when people do look throughout history and you are saying like, we should have gone out of business a long time ago, you can just see how it's really been shepherded through time and space. And I think a lot of people, that's why a lot of people convert when they study history because they're like, wow, like this is, I don't know what is going on here. Like, it's just, um, but you know, it's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. When you interact with, so, cause I want to talk a little bit about your experience, especially as you kind of came into this understanding mm-hmm. of the black Catholic experience when you, cause you're, you're talking, you're writing, you got podcasts, you got a lot of stuff. And I can imagine that you come into contact, generally speaking, statistically, when you're talking Catholics with people who don't have your lived experience, mm-hmm. because the stats are, I think it's like 3% of Catholic America is, is uh, African-American very, or yeah, something very, like that. Something Three very to 5%, similar. something very yeah. small. Right. Um, you know, our African brothers and sisters, that's a different story. Yeah. But here in this country, you know, it's pretty rare to come across a devout black Catholic who's American, mm-hmm. right? That's pretty rare. So when you come into these, you know, whatever sectors or these moments of, I don't know if you're speaking or somebody's giving you commentary on something you wrote, 
what are the kind of things that you hear mostly? Like, is there a top 10 either misapprehensions or questions you hear all the time? You see what I'm saying? Like, what are the things like with me? I can tell you in Latino, it's like, oh, yeah, we got to do everything in Spanish. Like, that's one of the things that comes up constantly Mm -hmm. about the Latino experience is it's a language thing. Mm. Like, are there things that come up for you a lot when you interact in different spaces and places? And, and, and just to clarify, too, are you saying like things that other African-Americans say maybe about Catholicism? No, things that Catholics no. say about African-Americans? Catholics say about black. Yeah. I think. Really, um, I'll be honest and say, I feel like the engage like re- so more so recently, I feel like there's been an uptick. I mean, there has been historically, I'm sure. Um, but recently, there's been a, a focus on like what is engagement looking like with African-American mm. people, with African-American culture. And I think the biggest thing I would say, if I had to say anything, would be looking at African-American experiences through the lens of politics. That would be number one. And it's, it's oh, not things that people do like consciously, but it's like when people talk about how do we engage with the African-American culture or like how do we help connect ourselves as, as Catholics with more African-Americans? How do we build more relationships? It's, it's almost looked at through the lens of like a political, like, even Activism. if it's not a policy or yeah, it's, it's looked at in that lens. Now I'll say that super interesting that a lot of people don't do it consciously or on purpose. And I think it's a lot of it is really because within the African-American community, historically activism has been a big part of spirituality. So that's like, even if you look at major figures, they're often a mixture of religious and activist figure. Like it's a weird yeah. thing in African-American culture, even elected officials, many elected African-American officials are ministers, which you don't that's see right. in other cultures. So it's a you very, don't. It's a very interesting thing. Where, and so I know why it's happening, but I think that also is a barrier because it starts mm. to create like, and that's why I think you see like backlash and, and anger at times among, amongst Catholics, amongst other sectors, and it becomes a very convoluted place where we're not as much about entering into this experience, but it's looked at through the lens of like policy or um, we have to, it's, it's, it's not about relationship as much and, or about dialogue that's with the super Jewish fascinating Di- uh, um, Bishop, uh, Edward Braxton in the podcast, mm-hmm. not to jump into it, but at the end of the podcast, yeah, we talk about, we do interviews with black Catholic leaders and, and speakers throughout the United States. And one of them is uh, the old Bishop of Belleville, Bishop Braxton, who I've interacted with often and um, he lives close. And so I actually interviewed him and he talked about that, you know, in his own experience, you know, as a Bishop, how he felt like that a lot of the scholarship, theological scholarship or like philosophical scholarship in the church never really interacted deeply with the African-American patrimony as it means to like the the scholarship and the thinking and the theological thinking of African-Americans, except for Dr. King. He was like, Martin Luther King Jr. is the only one who you'll ever see like people talk about. And it's great that they recognize that, but he's like, it's a lot more than just that. There's a lot more there than just that one figure. And he kind of just attributed to like not being aware of really like what's there to even dialogue with besides like this really public activist who was also a minister theology was really important to him but um you know i think that's one i think thing that can grow right is a real engagement with this culture and this rich Mm. this rich tradition that has so many elements to it beyond simply um the political concerns of a moment and i think that's how you have long and sustained engagement um i I think i think the 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 key word there which you mentioned is relationship right a relational approach because, you know, I mean, you already mentioned, uh, is she serving a God, Bowman, Teresa? Yeah, Sister Thea Bowman, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sister Bowman is serving a God and you've got, you know, Augustus Tolton and all these great mm-hmm. figures that we're beginning to now sort of study and look at in, in different ways. But it's so early. It's so like just the little green shoots are just beginning to appear. And the thing that makes that happen faster is if people take a real interest and they enter into relationship with that experience rather than, you know, look for these sort of easier avenues. Mm-hmm. The, the the idea of um, the intertwining of kind of political activism and spirituality in the black community is also something I hadn't thought of as a kind of backdrop for why people may feel that way, right? Yeah. Because the most visible, the most notable, the largest people who have been in a spiritual dimension have been activists, right? Now, we have that side, which obviously figures prominently for you as well, which mm-hmm. is the social justice background that you have. And maybe that's maybe that's the avenue. But a lot of times, depending on who you're talking to, that gets people's you know hair up on their back. Exactly. Their corner. Wait a minute, where, where are you going with this? Where are you going? No, 100%. I mean, I think it's tough because it's just like anything. It's it's you can't caricature an experience. And, you know, th- that tradition that I was just mentioning goes all the way back to slave slavery. I mean, um, a lot of the great abolitionist people um, were also religious figures and cited religion as a reason. Frederick Douglass, I mean, these people cite religion. It's, sure. like, it's just a consistent way of speaking and thinking. And so it's tough. Like um, even African-American culture, if you read textbooks that talk about diversity, um, I'm a therapist also as well. And so if you re- go through you know, graduate school for therapy, they often have like diversity sections and books of like kind of caricature visions of different cultures. And in the African-American section, it's always talking about they, they may ha- be more religious than other cultures. Like they may have more, like they may talk about Jesus or God out loud or like make religious statements, even if they're not religious. Like they, it's just a part of the language. And that's also tied with like this political engagement. If you go to a, like a black church, I don't want to caricature, but Baptist, a lot of Baptist churches, you may hear politi- things that sound like politics. You're like, oh, for sure. Like, is this like a, a political speech? Like, <laughs> but it's like a religious experience. And so it's it's very, it's deeply intertwined. And that's why it's like, it's not conscious for most people. It's something that they feel like is I'm just engaging with this. But I think like to get deeper, engaging with some of the thought leaders and some of those things. And, and I think as Catholics, seeing the intersections and helping people, like you're saying, social justice can be a gateway. I think our Catholic social doctrine absolutely can be a gateway because you see in Catholic social doctrine to me, really just, I mean, obviously influenced by natural law, revelation. Um, it, it just, it, it speaks to the heart of all people, but especially mm-hmm. people who have an inclination towards a more just society. And mm-hmm. that should directly lead them to like understand more about our, Catholic, our Catholic teaching more broadly and how it's intricately connected. So I, I think it's possible. Bishop Barron, I think, um, did a talk, um, a while back about evangelization. And he said, social justice is also important just for our generation. Um, just helping people to, to connect with Catholic social teaching as an aspect of, of the church's life. Because different yeah, generations it, have those things that would draw them for in. For sure. Yeah. And I can totally see how, um, you know, social engagement and justice and seeking the church's uh, teaching on, 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 on social issues can be a way in, in the same way that in previous generations, it might have been catechesis, formation, things like that, right? right? right. Like the kind of the, there's the thinking way in for it's information. Then there's the kind of doing way in. Exactly. And by the way, both, both of these have been true from the very beginning. It's just a question of like emphasizing, which the spirit tends to do over, you know, different periods of time, 
what's important for this time and place, especially for issues that everybody agrees are issues. So like, yes. for example, homelessness, which I know that you've got experience with. So do I, my wife and I have run a ministry here in Los Angeles for 20 plus years that, that works with, uh, that serves homeless families. And in the homeless community, you have massive over indexes of black and brown folks, mm-hmm. massive, especially black. Black is the, is the, well, actually the biggest one is Pacific Islander, believe it or not. They're a oh, tiny, wow. they're a tiny number, but the highest proportion. Oh, if you're a Pacific okay. Islander in the U S you're three times as likely to be homeless. But with, with black folks, it's two times as likely to be homeless. And so you've got this over index, right? So not only is it a way into the faith, it's also a way in to this sort of experience of a lot of these, uh, you, you know, cultures that you mm-hmm. might not otherwise engage with. Sure. And, um, you know, just to continue on this train, like I think about the church should not be on the defense in terms of engaging so- in social issues or social questions, because mm-hmm. the church is really the leader and has always been the leader in any issue of social engagement, whether it be charitable service, hospitals, everything. I mean, like it, you cross the university, education, I mean, across the board, across the board, we should never be on the defense. And, you know, I think that right now we're getting our sea legs under us with kind of like this current <laughs> cultural moment, but we should be confident in our social tradition. And yes, there's going to be points where it's like people disagree with certain things, but our, we have an impeccable record. We have done the work. We've created the institutions um, that have transformed. Our, and so I think it is a way to bring it into this current moment and, and really stand on our tradition and live it out. Um, and that's Amen. why I think a figure like Mother Teresa w- was so impactful in the 20th century because she was really just an image of this integrated life of faith that you see really throughout history. What Mother Teresa did in terms of Catholic perspective, not a- unusual at all. Like, she is not like no. some outlier that, you know, we look back in history, like we've never seen anyone like that. No, there's many people. Well, like she, she'd be the first person to tell you that. Too. And, and, and yeah, I'm not at all downplaying what she's done. No, I in fact, she's just a part of a legacy of like when people actually go deep in what it means to be conformed to Christ. This is what you may look like. like what it, looks it may look like. like something else, too. But this is what you could look like if you follow this to its logical conclusion. And so that is the message, I think, that um, so many people are attracted to the faith for. But I think African-Americans don't. Like you said, it's such a small percentage. A lot of people just don't even know, which is why they I don't. think figures like Julia Greeley, for example, known as the servant mm. of charity um, yep. in Colorado, like she lived this out as well. Like she had her own way of charity. It was very simple, right? Based on the means that she had, but she lived this out. And so these people are authentically like black figures. And it was no, you never hear about, you know, Augustus Tolton has his own experience, but for many people, it's not, it's not difficult for them to reconcile like, hey, like I'm, uh, I'm African American. I have this background, and I'm Catholic. Like it wasn't at all difficult, at least from anything we know about Julie. And Lewis. it shouldn't be. Yeah, and exactly. it shouldn't be. And I think that's you know, the go, message we have to communicate to others as well. I think we also got to be steeped in history. We got to go back and read the New Testament, right? I mean, you look at the Book of Acts, right? I mean, it's yeah. like it, you're talking about literally dozens of cultures and colors that were hearing this message at the same time, at the very beginning, exactly, and yeah. all of them you know, learning and talking and, and living with one another, right? So some of this is also about reclaiming our shared Catholic history and not forgetting about that, right? It's like we, we can tend to operate, you know, read these scriptures from this perspective of like, hey, it's like a, a meeting at the parish halls. Like, no, no, it wasn't. It was, you know, people didn't even speak, like didn't have your language, didn't have your background, didn't have your culture, didn't have anything. And yet they're all, you know, together in this, in this kind of mission. 
I think I think the other thing, Lewis, that you talked about, which is really interesting to me, is um, this idea of not being on our, you know, kind of defensive and 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 recognizing that we have the church is the instrument of salvation. That's yeah. what the Second Vatican Council says, right? Is the instrument of salvation for all of the brokenness, all of the things that need healing throughout the world, mm-hmm. whatever they are. The church is the instrument of that healing, and we have to like own that, right? We have to really take that to heart because I know um, you probably know Gloria Purvis too, but I know she talks a lot about this dynamic where when she's talking about the evil of racism, she just can't get a lot of traction in certain areas of Catholicism that then when she speaks about issues of life Mm -hmm. and then the opposite is true in other uh, conversation she has where mm-hmm. she's talking about the dignity of human life and she may not be able to get the traction among, you know, folks who are more interested in the issue of justice around racism. Yeah. And the the truth of it is both of those things aren't the right, that's not the right way to do it. Yeah. Like it, we're, we're, I guess what I'm saying is advancing the notion that Catholicism is a both and proposition, right? At, at, at all times. Yeah, 100%. And uh, I think that this, that issue that she has um, is an issue that, like, it's not what I'm alluding to. People are looking at these things through the lens of p- political ideology mm. and all these other things. And I think that is a big, it's a big challenge for evangelization right now. Um, you know, if you talk about, obviously, the dignity of, the, of every human life is an issue of social justice. And yeah, but if, but and for some people, that actually has led to their conversion. I know people who were engaged in the pro-life movement and that led to them actually becoming Catholic. So like I said, it works. It actually works to get people involved in these things. But um, yeah, I think people, sometimes people, even who say that they're a Catholic, there, there's something like there's sometimes the political filter may blind them to the fact that their church will always challenge them to be deeply and even more integrated in a way that may always transcend, or that may transcend any p- particular political boundary at any given moment. And I think mm. it's something that we all have to be converted on because we all have our own blinders. And I work with my, like myself, I personally work all the time to challenge myself, challenge my own preconceptions. Um, but I think that's, it's a big, it's a big thing with, with on the topic of race and on the topic of re- reaching across boundaries is depoliticizing it. When we talk about racism, depoliticizing that. And I talk about this on the podcast as well. Um, I think it's just so important. I just want to highlight an organization. Um, I'm on the board of the organization called Vagabond Missions. Yeah. And they are so phenomenal because they are doing this in real life. <laughs> I mean, like relational, I mean, down to the neighborhood level, you go to one of their undergrounds, they have these places called undergrounds and they go out and they go to basketball courts. They just play basketball with kids. They go out and they just meet kids after school. At first it was actually a little bit creepy because like I heard stories talking to some of the missionaries and they were saying, we would just pull up in a white van and just hop out and say, Hey, you want to come to our <laughs> underground? I'm like, I'm like, what are y'all doing? Like, but anyways, but uh, kidnapper van. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, okay, that's creepy. But they said we got rid of the white van and we kind of improved our style. Um, but you know, they really are reaching out and just building relationships, inviting people in. And they actually have, um, basically RCIA, but they call it Jesus class. And they really just like engage with, and it's, which I love. That's awesome. And the, and the thing is like, they're building the relationships and it's not political at all. It's, and yes, it's people mostly who are not African-American who are the missionaries building authentic relationships with people with different cultures. And they have so many shared things and different things that they enrich each other. And it's not political. It's, it's literally about evangelization. And that's what we as a church have to get better at. Now, as lay people, lay people should be involved in political life. 
but that can look super different and they can still be Catholic. Right. <laughs> um, and so I think we have to always have the first thing being our faith, being the gospel, being, um, you know, again, crossing boundaries for the sake of Christ. Um, and making sure that we're challenging our own political preconceptions and saying like, am I here? If I'm hearing this talk on racism is the first thing that comes to my mind, like this is progressive or whatever, or is the first thing like the thought of the kingdom of God in like the book of revelation and all of these people in the kingdom of heaven of different cultures and tongues and backgrounds and nationalities, because that should be our first image and everything else should be seen through that light. It's the great banquet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Vagabond is always hit. Uh, there's, there's a, there's two apostolates that hit my screen all the time. Um, cause our uh, ministry is called Sophisa mm. and my wife leads that. And she was homeless herself for seven years and she speaks all over the country about her own lived experience and the work that we've been doing for a couple decades now, but there's two apostolates. Vagabond is one. The other one is Christ in the city mm-hmm. yeah. that kind of hit my screen because of exactly what you just said. And I love the way you said it, crossing boundaries for the sake of Christ, because that is the great commission. The great commission isn't, you know, just sit, sit around and believe this, right. Uh, Believe that, that, that God is real, that he loves you, that he redeemed you. All those things are part of this, but the great commission is go out, right. Go out to all the world. And so that necess- that by necessity means you're crossing those boundaries. You're crossing those borders. And if we don't do that, and we don't do it as a way to say to ourselves, this is how we serve Christ, and see everybody as we cross those boundaries as Christ, then we're really not living out that great commission. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's the truth. Might make people uncomfortable, but that's the truth. I'm not saying what you're doing is bad. But if you're not doing that, right, the other one that always comes up is Homeboy Industries, mm. you know, with uh, a lot of the work that they do with, with people coming out of prison. But that is, that is this idea of kind of crossing over and entering into relationship with people so that you can just share with them and experience with them, you know, what, what, what's going on. And that builds you up, right? Because it's a two-way street. That's mm-hmm. the other thing. It's not just about what you can do for them. Exactly. Right? It's what they're doing for you because God doesn't miss any opportunity. Yeah. And the reality is like, this is the gospel. This is, and I think, you know, to one of the big challenges, um, you know, when I was an intern, I worked uh, as an intern for the Catholic campaign for human development. One of the things that we always talked about is just this dichotomy between like Catholics who love adoration and Catholics who want to go and do social justice oriented things. There's a big divide amongst some young adults, um, in particular, particular states, especially that have large populations. This is something that happens and breaks out more. You have whole parishes that are like one or the other. It becomes very complex. Um, but the reality is it's like these things, if you look in the gospel, what does Christ say at the last judgment that he's, <laughs> that he's going to judge us on? It's being with those who are in prison, being with those who are, who are in need in, in a variety of ways. That is the, that is the criterion by which God will judge us. And so it's deeply tied to evangelization because we not only want to live that, but we want to model that for those people who we also want to bring mm-hmm. into our church community. So I think we just have to break down these walls. We need to bring people to adoration because that's how they can contemplate the face of Christ. And when they see the face of Christ in the blessed sacrament, they'll be better prepared to see them see that in someone who may not be as clearly an evidence of, of Christ, but it is still Christ is present in that person. So we need to do both. But I think that's the role of, I think, 
clergy and those who are forming catechists and lay ministers is just to help people to break down those silos because they're not getting it from anywhere else in the culture. There's nowhere else they will possibly get that message. But if we want to send out real disciples, we have to send out people who are able to say like, I love seeing Christ in the blessed time. And I can just, I feel driven to go out and engage with that person on the margins and really build authentic relationship all the time. And it's hard. And this night, you may not be called to go out and join Christ in the city, which is great, or Vagabond Missions, which you should become a missionary. But um, you may be driven to at your workplace, like there's a difficult conversation and you may just be driven to lean in and you never know. Like I've had conversations at my work as well with people, you know, you think someone is going to hate everything you have to say and they're going to hate listening yeah, to it. Yeah. But all of a sudden, like they open up like I was Catholic, you know, I uh, haven't been a mass in years or whatever. And they just people, see you people your have People have generally surprised me, you know, exactly, I mean, yeah. I, I, li- I live and work in Hollywood. You know what I mean? It's like the the perception is this is an antagonistic place to faith. And I don't want to minimize that. I think sure, a lot sure. of the cultural forces are that in that direction. Mm-hmm, sure. However, one-on-one conversations exactly. with people, I've almost always been surprised. But then I go back and go, well, should I really be surprised? Because at the end of the day, every created thing, like we're all created beings and we long for our creator. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what that's what we do. And so I shouldn't be surprised um, that, you know, these conversations can sometimes turn in a way where you thought one thing, but you ended up with something else. I remember one time I was, um, I was having a conversation with a venture capitalist. Um, I don't, I don't think I've told this story before on the show, but um, cause I, I was in the media startup world mm-hmm. and I was leaving a, a very senior role at one of these companies. And so the, the main venture capital guy wanted to meet with me and he wanted to have sort of like a, I don't know, exit interview. Sure. I'm sure that on some point he was just trying to gather info, but that doesn't matter. I'll, like, I'll take up any opportunity. <laughs> so I went and I sat with him and we just started, you know, we talked about the business and all that stuff. And about halfway into the conversation or about a half hour into the conversation, he, um, I mentioned something about, I don't even remember what it was, but I had just recently been ordained. And I mentioned something about having to do something related to, you know, to my ministry as a deacon. And like, the the temperature in the room dropped by like 12 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he was like, well, what, what, what is that? And I was like, and I explained it to him. He's like, you're Catholic. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm not just Catholic. I'm Catholic clergy. He's like, like a priest. And I was like, yeah, like a priest. I go, there's three, you know, it's yeah. like black belts. You got different degrees, <laughs> right? It's like bishops, priests, and deacons. And then we started taking this conversation this whole way. Now he had a lot of hangups, a lot of misapprehensions, a lot of complaints about a lot of different things. But it's not like he wasn't going to talk about it. And it's not like there wasn't something there. And maybe that was a seed, right? But when when that temperature initially dropped, I was like, oh, this thing is going to go sideways. Yeah, that's right. Like, you know, I I, I was like, I was kind of bracing myself, right? But that was my own hang up. Mm. That was my own problem, you know, because I was actually surprised by that conversation. Yeah, I love that because I think it's we, it's very human, right? I don't want to. It's human to have the feeling of like I don't really want to get into an uncomfortable situation. Like I just wanted to keep the peace and like maybe even like you know if there's people that are different than you and you feel like you know, maybe you're kind of stirred to like engage with people that are different than you. You may feel like I don't want to say the wrong thing. Like you may hear the story I just gave earlier and be like I don't want to be that person. Like all those types of things. But the reality is, it's like we are called to get uncomfortable. Like think about the early uh, apostles and missionaries. And all they're doing is getting uncomfortable. I mean, they're getting killed for, like, they're going out of their way. And that, we have to recover that zeal. And that is going to be challenging, but we have to be willing to be challenged for the gospel. And this is on every different level. And so sometimes I think we shy away. So you know, talking about racism, for example, 
a lot of us shy away because of the political edge to it. And we don't want to get caught up into that. And that's right. Et cetera, et cetera. But we have to remember like that evangelization is often meeting people where they're at. And the culture right now is having this discourse. So as Catholics, even if you're like, racism is not my thing, I don't want to focus on it, like whatever, you have to understand like, this is going to come up. This is a conversation. This is something to learn more about. And it's also an aspect of our faith. And so it's like, we sometimes have to challenge ourselves. We have to go out of ourselves and that is difficult. And I want to recognize that, but also say, challenge yourself, like have those conversations that are challenging and always try to come in the spirit of prayer and the spirit of the gospel. And you will be surprised at what happens in those conversations. And there may be some uncomfortable moments, but also like Holy Spirit moments where you're like, God's here. God's with us. Jesus said, I'll never leave you alone. Like we we have God with us. And let and let's you know let's be honest about the discomfort too. I mean, you go back to the first century and you're preaching in a crowd, and next thing you know, you got a spear through your chest. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's that's discomfort. Mm-hmm. What we're talking about is like, oh, maybe this person is gonna like have a negative response. Like for the most yeah, right, part, yeah. we're not we're not dealing with that kind of discomfort. And I think part of it is also acknowledging that things are real does not, in and of itself, put you in a position of a particular political or yes. ideological perspective. Yeah. I had um, my friend Patrick Coffin was on the sh- on this show two weeks ago, I think it was, and Patrick got into all of this just mess. I don't know if you know him or or his story, but he was the um, the host of Catholic Answers mm-hmm. Live for like nine years, very well known Catholic personality. And I met him when he was there, and we stayed friends. But you know that he left Catholic Answers, put out his own shingle, and you know started to do shows or whatever. And he got really wrapped around an axle around two things. One was COVID and the second one was Pope Francis. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, he, he kind of started going off the rails and, and he put out this video about how Pope Francis wasn't the real Pope. The, the entire Catholic uh, ecosystem just like threw up. Right. And there was all these videos put out about here's why Patrick Coffin is wrong. And in none of them were they actually saying, Hey Patrick, come talk about it. So I can tell you, you know, in charity, Mm -hmm and correct you fraternally, which is what we're supposed to do. Like it never happened. So he was up in LA and I was like, Hey, why don't you come by? Let's talk. And we had like a three hour show, right. Talking about his views mm-hmm. and on the, on the show, I'm like, uh, you know, I don't agree with any of this. Right. But I still love you. I still want what's best for you. You know? And it's like, and we had this dialogue and he's still like one of the most interesting people that I know of, um, you know, about so many other things. And so Part of that discomfort is putting yourself, yeah. right, at risk, right? Because, oh, we don't want to have somebody like that, you know, talk on the show because that's going to look bad for you. It's like, I want a show where I can have, I've said this before, where I can have like, you know, Father James Martin on one episode and Cardinal Burke on the next. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the kind of thing that I want to do because I take seriously this idea, like St. Paul says, of helping to save some of them, right? It's like, w- we have to bring folks together and, and, and have conversations that are uncomfortable sometimes. But if we do it in the spirit of charity and we're well situated with, you know, with our own faith and we were grounded in the gospels, like, what are you afraid of? You know what I mean? And there's just a lot of fear that dominates, you know, the discourse. And I don't know, I just, I think that's a big part of our problem. Absolutely. And I really commend you for doing that because yeah, it can always be dicey. There's always like a, you know, we, like people get, they're not really excommunicated, but people get socially excommunicated in those types of ways. And I think the big thing is it's like, we have to be able to have discourse across difference. We have to be able to do that. Pope Francis actually talks about this in any evangelical Gaudium. You have to be able to talk to people across differences. It's really, you know, um, and even Fratelli Tutti, where he's talking about building social friendship. 
He's always talking about the need to talk to people who are different, disagree, sit with that discomfort, um, and you know, even accompaniment that big, big buzzword. <laughs> um, mm. The reality of it means accompanying people who are not perfect, who are not at the point of you know sainthood, right? You're gonna have to accompany people and walk with people who may say things you don't agree with at times or whatever. But it's in that relationship that um, that really Christ can be present. I don't remember who I don't remember who said it, but. There was a, some statement, basically it was like, um, if you meet someone who's not in relationship with Christ, be in relationship with them because Christ will be in relationship with them through you, right? Like you are literally Christ, like you're supposed to be Christ. And so it's like, we, we can't just cut people off like that. We have to have dialogue across difference. I think people get really comfort, comfortable in their ecosystems, in their audience, and they don't want to, yeah, make waves. The go- yeah, for sure. Yeah. The gospel for this Sunday is about, you know, when Jesus says tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom before you. Yeah. Uh, I don't know a more clear way to say that, you know? Um, and and the other part, which I think we also take for granted, is we have a ways to go ourselves, right? So even the, the idea of engaging this sort of discourse across the difference, right? Discourses across differences means that there may be something there for you that God wants you to learn. Yeah, 100%. Right? It's it's like you can go into a setting where it's like, oh, you know, this person is either wrong theologically, ideologically, socially, or they're living in a way that's that I know is not the fullness of who they should be. And I walk in thinking I'm going to help them with that. And like on some part, that's good because you want to do good for your brother or sister. But if we stop with just that and we don't think that God can take that that discourse and help shape you yeah. and help heal you and help create, you know, some fullness in some of your gaps and your shortcomings, you're wrong because he can. Right. So on some level, it comes down to faith, too. And I think what's so, you know, if you listen, like if you ever have read any of the Desert Father stories, there's a lot of Desert Father sure. stories about a monk who's dying. And he'll be surrounded by like his the the monks that followed him, and he'll be on his deathbed and be like, "Forgive me, like I'm the greatest sinner." <laughs> and everyone's like, "Why are you saying that? Like you're obviously like a saint. Like you obviously let us all." Hit. But that it's not lie. It's not false, fake. You, he really understands. Like I am. I need help. I am not mm. self sufficient. Like I am not mm. perfect. I need mm. God's grace. And that realization overflowing to the point where even he's dying and literally probably angels are like greeting him and he's still feeling like I'm a sinner. I don't deserve it. And yeah, in our discourse, we should have that same humility, not going to people like, I can't wait to school you. I'm going to own you. Like all this, like, no, we definitely, it should be a spirit of like real engagement, like authentic, like, Mm. I love you. I really want to, I can learn something from you. You can learn something from me. I may disagree with you on this, but there's probably something I'm wrong on that you may know more about like that spirit. And if you really have that spirit and you go into your workplace, or you go into whatever social setting or whatever, people that will make it people will notice that because that is something mm. that not even just in the church we struggle with, but in the world. And so if we can get that right in the church, I think we can it'll help our evangelization to facilitate those cross-cultural conversations, those cross-difference conversations, and it'll set our church on fire. I think it's something that people want, which is why I feel like even in the secular world, people having those conversations across difference, that's rising to the top. More and more people are wanting to listen to that and, and be exposed to that. Because they feel like something's missing. They feel like the polarization is choking. And, and it's something, mm. something human, authentically human, is, is not present in that. Um, so, yeah. I think you said it earlier, too. And, and it's not easy, by the way, right. in the yeah, culture yeah. we're living in right now. The depolitization 
right, of things. If I told you, if I sat in a room, I can, I can even draw a picture for you. Okay, let's say that I go, so, you know, the, the Religious Education Congress has a perception, this is in Anaheim, that it's a little bit left of center. Okay, in some cases, people would say it's way left of center. Something like um, the Napa Institute Conference is an example. I love Napa. By the way, I love both of these places. But the Napa Institute Conference might have a right of center or like Legatus or something mm-hmm. like that, right? So you got, so let, let's start with those two perspectives. If I walked into, say, Legatus or the Napa side and my whole thing was, um, uh, you know, care for the environment, sustainability, um, outreach to the imprisoned, so uh, homelessness. If that was my whole thrust, you're going to have some, some people who are like, I'm, I'm hearing you, but I'm hearing you halfway because sure. the other half is like, wait, where are you going? If we went to the REC, to the Congress, and my whole thing was Eucharistic adoration, liturgical um, orthodoxy, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a, a proper uh, b- scriptural understanding, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things like that. You probably, you might have the same in the other direction, right? But the, the reality is, is, you know, the whole thing is Catholic, right? Or, 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 you know, there's obviously out of bounds in both of those scenarios, which we could certainly talk about, but generally speaking, mm-hmm. you're Vatican one and Vatican two, right? That's the, yeah. <laughs> that's the reality of being Catholic. Are you like, uh, somebody asked me when, uh, I won't say who, but uh, somebody asked me in a relatively senior position in the archdiocese, okay, about whether or not I believed in Vatican II. And I said, I love Vatican II, uh, just as much as I love Vatican I. You know what I mean? And it was like, the person was like, whoa, you know, kind of like thrown a little bit, you know? Um, but that's the, bur- that's the cross, right, of, of the burden, if there is one, is, is going out into these spaces and going like, yeah, you know, I look up, not left and right. And, and you know, that, that hits people strange sometimes. Yeah. And speaking about Vatican II, one of the, um, so uh, part of my conversion experience was um, actually I was, so I actually started an activist house um, during the time of the Michael Brown situation in St. In Louis area. Sure. Ferguson. Yeah. And I actually lived in an activist house. Um, it was basically like a co-op, like a cooperative house. Lived in there with a guy from Union Theological, a bunch of people, but one person was a guy from Union Theological Seminary. And during that time is like when I started like my kind of deep, like I was like coming back into faith. Like I was starting to believe in Christ. Like I was listening to the Psalms like played on the YouTube. Like I was like, it was going deep with me. Mm. Long story short, but I ended up joining the Coptic Orthodox Church. Ended up like, oh wow, <laughs> yeah, I ended up getting deep. I was in the, with the cops for a while, um, many years. And that's actually where I started learning about early church fathers and all those different things. But my process, and so I'm deep, I'm skipping through a lot, but the process of conversion back into Catholicism, um, that process happened in part due to my engagement with the Second Vatican Council. Mm. Because the Second Vatican, like if anyone knows about the Orthodox communities, love the Orthodox and they are beautiful and the Eastern traditions have so much to offer and we have to improve in, in our engagement also across those theological differences. Much has happened, but we have a long way to go. However, one of the big problems that the Orthodox struggle with is how do I live this ancient faith in the modern world. Like if anyone knows any Orthodox communities in like real youth or young adults in those communities, that is like a number one struggle. Like how do I navigate like taking this like deep Egyptian tradition and like living it in 
the United States and like, and there's a lot of fights inter within that community around that and all types of things, using English or Arabic and Greek, Coptic language, all these different things. Um, but one of the things that was so powerful about, um, you know, Gaudium Espez and, and all everything that the Second Vatican Council had was it was able to, in a way only the Holy Spirit can, take this, the, the ancient faith all the way, the heart, the spirit of the gospel and orient us towards the, uh, the perspective of how we should approach modernity, how we really can effectively engage with man whose mind is not the same as man, you know, 40, uh, 450, 500 years ago. It's just a different mindset. And so it's really just about how do we effectively engage? And if you look at some of the challenges that they have in some Orthodox communities, where even like the idea of having different orders, monastic orders, that would be like anathema to them. They're like, what? You can't have orders. There's only monks. Like, <laughs> and so like you can freeze development at so many times in, in church history and come up with these challenges. But I think the Second Vatican Council is a gift. And I know mm. that there's so many people who they have challenges with the Second Vatican Council, how it was implemented, et cetera, et cetera. But if you engage with what it says, the Holy Spirit is so present and it is a gift for us that we have to unwrap. And we have, as lay people, we shouldn't say like, oh, it's too difficult. I can't read it. No, read the documents, especially with the discourse as it is now. It's really important that you go out of your way to read, especially Guardian Med Spez and some of the other documents as well. Read them and you'll, you'll feel the Holy Spirit calling to you in these documents about how we are called, you know, until there's another council, right? This is our orientation of how we're called to engage in this period. And you can also read St. John Paul II, who was there, and all these others, St. Pope Paul VI, Pope Benedict XVI, all their writings come out of this spirit of, this is us engaging with the modern world. They're very different. Pope Francis, Benedict, St. Um, John Paul II, St. Pope Paul VI, not the same people, very different. And they're all trying to engage with the modern world. And through that, we shouldn't say like, who's your favorite, like pick a side. No, this shows us the That's diversity of ways you can experience I'm called to evangelize and your calling may be, I'm called a pro-life ministry. That's a full-time, that's my effort to change society as a layperson. Yes, do that. Your, your goal may be to help the church love the liturgy more deeply and to, to more, more reverently approach the blessed sacrament. Do that. And you may have a role to focus on racism in the world. Do that. We need everyone going on all these different levels. And the main thing is the Second Vatican Council, to me, just reinvigorated the role the laity has in transforming social realities. And that may take a lot of different um, flavors. And I think we have to get comfortable in the church with that. I think that's where people, they, they don't want the ambiguity of like, you can be like totally different than me and still be like Orthodox. You can be totally having this as your apostolate and, and, you know, and be still in the same church as me. It's very hard, but it's also a gift. And I think we just have to unwrap that gift. And I think Second Vatican Council orients us perfectly um, to doing that and living that out. And it's going to be something we continue to unwrap for the next, you know, hundred years. Maybe. Yeah. Preach it. There's another, another reason I dig for uh, Pope Francis is, you know, I remember when he canonized uh, St. Uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, he did it on the same day that he canonized uh, Pope John the 23rd, mm. right? These like two very different people. And, you know, even if they had, everybody has an ideological bias sure. or right, a exactly. direction yep. or an yep. orientation, yep. Right. And usually it breaks somewhere at the very top. It sort of breaks in this, you know, kind of more, uh, you know, liturgical versus societal kind. There's like a there's like some kind of branching off that happens there. There's a kind of ontological versus a phenomenological mm -hmm. kind of break or tributary. There's like these moments where you start kind of finding yourself in different food groups. These were very different people. 
right? But they're both in heaven, right? Exactly. Which is <laughs> what we're trying to do: yeah. get to heaven, exactly. Great point. right? Yeah, great um, I think I also think of Bishop Fulton Sheen mm-hmm. when I the comment you made about people reading the documents. Bishop Fulton Sheen famously said that there's not like more than a hundred people who hate the Catholic Church, but there are thousands who hate what they believe yeah. the Catholic Church is. Same thing with the Second Vatican Council. I'm like, have you read yeah. Gaudium et Spes? Yeah. Have you read any of these documents? Or even the things that are informed by the Second Vatican Council. I talked to somebody just recently about uh, Ritum Tonus Sacramentum, which is all about the liturgy. It's like, have you read these documents? Because most of the time the answer is no, I haven't. But I have this vision of what it mm-hmm. means, right? Or Which has been shaped by stuff other than what the fathers actually wrote and said, right? So that's a big thing. We, we got to get better about that for sure. And it's also interesting because I think a lot of people don't even realize that they're breathing, like the church that, they, that we live in in our current time is already informed deeply by the Second Vatican Council and the strengths of it. So not just the downfall, right? People would say, well, yeah, I know that people not coming to mass is shaped by that. Well, I don't agree with that, but I'll say, also, the fact that we have so many dynamic lay speakers who are getting up and like trying to bring people into the faith, that is a direct result of you know the doctrine of the lady, it, uh, uh, the apostle of the lady that is in the Second Vatican Council. I mean, and so it's so interesting because, like I said, the Orthodox don't have this. And I feel like if they had this, yeah. this would actually solve a lot of the issues that they were talking about actively. They don't even have language for like how to move forward. And we have the solution. And it's sad that we have it. And we're just, we just kind of, it's, it becomes another thing to fight about. Um, you, you, yeah. you know, the, the weird thing about there's, you know, Catholic to Orthodox um, converts, because I've met a number of them, but I've never had a chance to ask this question, which is, did you look at the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church before you made that change? You know what I mean? Yeah. Because that's another thing people don't know about. It's like we, we got the divine liturgy. Yeah. It's just under, you know, under the Pope. And it's extremely similar. I mean, like, like with some of the rites, it's almost exactly the same. And um, I think, yeah, I mean, it's it's sad because I think a lot of people who do and, and again, I have deep respect for the Orthodox, but I think a lot of those sure. Catholics who transition out are in protest against the Pope or yeah, whatever course. it may be. And I just yeah. wish people could understand, like, you know, just even Pope Francis, for example. I think a lot of people, and I have a good friend who uh, we had a debate about Pope Francis, right? He had his own feeling. But I was able to t- ask him, like, what have you read from Pope Francis? Like, what have you read that Pope Francis sure. put out that you were like, I don't agree with this? And he couldn't, he, like, because it was really the vibes. It was the vibes of Pope Francis. It was the vibes of things that he had said, whatever. And I'm like, just, I'm like, look, you can disagree with a person. Like, you can, there can be things that you, that you feel like, whatever, the way that somebody says something can irk you in a certain way. Just challenge yourself and read his documents. You will find such richness. And Pope Francis is not an ideological, an ideologically left figure as we look at it in the American context. He would be, if you had to, I believe that the right-left dichotomy is, is faulty for a lot of reasons, even politically. But like, let's say you were going to try to track him in the United States, he would be a hard right figure. I mean, like, I mean, like if you think about what he says about gender ideology and uh, and uh, the Eucharist and all and the things he says about abortion. I mean, it's like hiring a hitman. Like he's very blunt. He's very blunt about how he feels about the environment and very blunt about how he feels about uh, engaging people on the margins and abortion and gender ideology. And the sanctity of marriage. And like, I mean, like he's like, he's a, he's actually a person who you may not, his approach may not be your approach, but we should be able to look at him and say like, he is standing up in a, in a culture and Europe is a more difficult context than, than in the United States in some of these issues. And he's able to still pronounce strongly like his views on abortion and 
the dignity of life and on um in on the sanctity of marriage and and as Catholics, it's just it's a deep passion of mine for people to to love the Pope no matter who it is. Because if we go out and we're trying to share the faith with people and we're at the same time, well, on one hand telling people to join the Catholic Church, on the other hand, tearing down the papacy, we're we're defeating and it's a big part. A lot of Orthodox Catholics are Catholics who are deeply faithful and love Christ and when I do the faithful thing, like they're also at one one hand tearing down the exact foundations that they're trying to bring people into. And last uh, vignette, I had, I was out on vacation with my in-laws and I love them. And, um, you know, they have a uh, family friends that also come with them on vacations and things like that. And we were sitting around the campfire and, um, somebody just was like, what do you think about Pope Francis? And then I was like, all right, <laughs> let's get into it. And I'm Here telling them, like, I love even him. the, que- even the question exactly, has an yeah. assumption built in. Exactly. I'm like, I love Pope Francis. They're like what? Like, and it gets into this dialogue. And I'm like, Pope Francis has, you know, he has his own experience built up from his experiences as a, as an archbishop and the things that he's done there and, and just his cultural background and things like that. And it's very different than, you know, some other cultural backgrounds, but he's stood up for, for life. He stood up for people on the margins and really challenging conversations. And he's really trying to help us to evangelize our modern world, engage with people who are different, have hard conversations. And I'm like, if you read anything by, I challenge you to read something by Pope Francis, bring it to me and say like, this is not, this is not mm-hmm. some inspirational inspirational stuff here um yeah so anyways and not and and grounded in you know two millennia worth of of teaching exactly i i shared a little vignette of my own uh earlier um i I don't remember how long ago it was but you know one of these um examples of how politically you can't really box somebody like pope francis in right you can find you can find the things which like see this is why he's left this is why he's left look at all these things and then you can equally find on the other <laughs> side, like, well, what, what about, what about this? Like, I, and we're not going to talk about those. Like, how does that work? One thing that he did, which I thought was super interesting. It was very small, but I was like, this is super interesting. There was a woman and I, I saw the little social video about it. There was a woman who came up to him at some like Wednesday audience or something. And she asked him, she's like, will you bless my child? And then he's like, of course. So she turns around and she's got like a little French poodle or something in her little, you know, caring thing. And he said, no. And he said, he goes, this is not a child. This is an animal. (laughs) You know, the uh, children are humans Mm -hmm. and they're, you know, they have human dignity. And he took that moment. Now I'm, I'm saying to myself, like, if I'm just thinking from a kind of political ideological lens, right. Cause you know, I live in LA. I got people that, you know, have strollers for dogs. Okay. (laughs) And, and believe me, they're not voting for Trump. Okay. So I can, I can take the caricature and I can go, okay, this person is kind of one of those folks, you know what I mean? And so they should find an ally. Francis should be blessing all the animals. And in fact, on St. Francis's feast day, that's what we do on purpose. Yeah, right. So what, so what's the deal? But no, because it was a moment where a woman had a misapprehension of what was actually going on. And pastorally, the thing to do at that moment, you can disagree with it, but pastorally, what he decided was this woman should know that this is actually not a child and that animals and people are different because maybe he's looking around at the world and going, we need to relearn that because we got a lot of people who have lost the idea of what human dignity actually is. So I was like, that's an example, small, but an example of the kind of complex person that you're dealing with that you just can't box in in this way. You know what I mean? Yeah. And as Catholics, we have the responsibility, like obviously popes are also different. And so it's not like we're going to have the same amount of a, like love for one particular, just like saints. We have so many saints 
it's not like you have to choose a team or whatever, but sometimes you're just drawn to a certain saint more than another one, or another a bishop may speak, and you may be drawn to that, whatever it may be. But I think as Catholics, we do have a responsibility with our current internet capabilities to learn as much about what our Pope, no matter who it is, is teaching as we can. Because so many centuries, they never had this capacity. I think we have that responsibility. One thing that Pope Francis talked about in Evangelii Guardian was this idea of reality is more important than ideas. I love that. And I feel like if you look at a lot of his papacy, that's the kind of spirit that he's trying to approach things. Like he'll talk a lot about ideology and like fighting against ideology in a variety of different ways. And I think he's, he's, and we have to hear like the Holy Spirit is maybe speaking through him. Obviously he's just by the grace of state, he's saying things that the Holy Spirit is trying to get us to know at some level. And so we should have the humility to understand that. And I think that's a big call. I feel in the United States that we have to do that. We have to fight ourselves on, as I was talking about earlier on so many topics, we have to fight back this ideology that we Every person has a bias towards their own ideology. It's not one ideology. Everyone has their own biases. And we have to say, how can I become less? How can this ideology become less? And Christ can become greater. We should still be culturally aware and, and, and savvy so that we can have discourse with no matter who it may be. We actually have to do that as well. But we, mm. we should not be ideological figures. We should be like Christocentric in our own thinking, in our own approach. And that will always be anti-ideological because we won't want to put ourselves in a box. And I think Pope Francis not being able to be put in a box is him living out this reality Mm. that he's trying to help us Mm. to see as well. And so even though I hate that he is getting hit, St. John Paul II got hit, Pope Benedict got hit in another way. Everyone gets hit. And so it's going to happen. I hate that it's happening, but it's going to happen. But I think we need to just learn. We actually need to, we should see like his, the critiques he's hitting and the willingness that he has to continue on this path and say like, hey, maybe I'm also called to like, Say some things that people may not immediately like, but um, taking the hit, this is a part of the gospel. We have to. That's for sure. And, and you know, we got plenty of uh, martyred popes to look at. Who right, took, exactly. Uh, took Real, hits, yeah, the deep hits. hits of a, <laughs> a deep hits, <laughs> deep cuts, you know. Um, Lewis, I, w- I, w- I want to chat a little bit about the show yeah. because we haven't really talked about that too much. And, you know, I know that you guys put the, the, that show out. It's called The Ark and the Dove, mm-hmm. uh, five episode uh, narrative style podcast that, you know, looks at some of these things that we've been talking about, right? These dynamics of race and religion in the U.S., right? It's got a very U.S. uh, kind of focus. Mm -hmm. And also the vantage point, the vantage point is sort of the black Catholic experience. Mm -hmm. And I haven't heard all of them, but, um, you know, you get into some of these topics, Mm -hmm. um, you know, on this show. And I'm curious what kind of feedback you've heard from folks who've kind of gone through that narrative journey? Actually, I've heard, um, have heard a lot of different feedback and I really appreciate that. So, um, I actually, at the last episode, we have a variety of Catholics, um, who are, you know, Catholics today. Some of them are speakers, some are bishop priests. We have a, a lot of people uh, on that. And one of the guys who was on that, Nathan Crankfield, um, actually made a podcast about the podcast <laughs> and, nice. um, he, he was like, I love, he's like, I'm glad I could be a part of it. He's like, like Lewis, my friend, like I, I talk to him sometimes and um, he's like, but I had these critiques and I reached out to him after and I was like, I appreciate this, man. Like, thanks for like doing this podcast, like, and like totally valid. Like, um, and so his, his thing was, you know, he feel, he felt like um, some of the perspectives of some of the other people that he, his voice was kind of with, he was like, I just totally disagree with them. And like, you know, his, his view is more so that, um, you know, again, his own perspective is that why are we talking so much about race or like the way we talk about race can just need mm. so much improvement. He's, he's African-American himself. 
Um, and so he had that, you know, critique against what other people were saying. So not actually our narrative, but against what other people were saying. And I told him, look, we chose a variety of voices. And the reality is that the, the experiences that people are having, we didn't coach them to have this. We're actually not editorializing. We're sharing what people are feeling and what people are saying. And mm. it's totally fair to disagree with what they're saying and to not like it. But we, this is what they're saying. This is their feeling. This is yeah. their belief. And they are brothers and sisters. And we have to hear them out. I'm not saying everything you hear, you have to like, I agree with you 100%. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. That's not even the goal. The goal is for you to enter into hearing what people are saying. And through that hearing, like you'll just grow to understand people more. St. Jose Maria Escriva has this uh, statement I paraphrase, paraphrase often incorrectly, but basically love consists more in understanding than anything else, right? Just understanding mm -hmm. the other and understanding where they're coming from. And that was the goal of it. And so anyways, um, that was one critique uh, from him. And um, and it probably came from a good place for him because, I mean, when, when Opus Dei first started, it was like supposed to be people were scared of it. They thought it was like some progressive, uh, you know, innovation. Oh, it's and now yeah, today yeah. it's like, yeah, today now it's like Opus Dei is regarded in a different way. Right. It's more like, oh, this means that you're really into your faith. And of course, Dan Brown didn't help any of this right. with this, <laughs> this stupid movie. But but like, you, you know, it, it he, he probably spoke from lived experience on that one. Yeah. And I mean, Opus Dei is a good example of how, you know, things are viewed differently at different times and how, yeah, he was viewed as being uh, progressive and, you know, pushing the boundaries of like what was typically understood for the role of the lady as well as for the role of women and others. And um, and now, again, viewed as like arch conservative and all these different things. So, you know, it's one of those things where it's like you can't get caught up in human respect. And he's also talked a lot about that. You have to really be focusing on being faithful to the gospel and trying to understand others and being in relationship and dialogue with others. There's actually a story of St. Jose Maria, um, you know, who, a uh, little bit of tangent, but St. Jose Maria uh, obviously lived during the Spanish Civil War. It's a big part of his story in life. And, um, you know, there was a group of Opus Dei members and affiliates who were in jail. And um, they were actually jailed with a bunch of anarchists. <laughs> and because at that time, if you knew the, the, the situation, there was a lot of different political groups going on in Spain. And so they were writing him letters and saying, like, you know, we're like in jail with anarchists. Like, what do we do? Like, how do we engage with this? And he's like, play, like, play, play sports with them, be friends with them, like mm. talk to them. Um, and anarchists at that time, like that's I mean, they're not just, you know, kind of like ideological people in their parents basement. Like they're like real, like about to like overthrow, like they're trying to overthrow the church. They're trying to these are like the most anti-Catholic people you probably could imagine at that time um, with some others. And he was like, befriend them. Talk to them, hear them out, learn about them, understand them. That's how you really grow in friendship with others. So all the way back, you know, this has been a, a theme that I think we should draw on from all the different times in history. But anyways, I digress. Um, it's radical. It's radical. Yeah. And it's always been challenging and it's always been different reasons why it's difficult. And so um, we also got, you know, some good feedback on the podcast. Like some people were like, I never had known about these stories. And like um, a lot of people also who went on the whole journey just thought it was well-produced, you know, especially for a Catholic podcast. It's really styled after This American Life. And deep work went in. Like, we have interviews on this podcast, people who are dead. Like, they, these are, like, you're hearing stories that will know, nowhere, you will never hear these stories again. And it's just very personal. It's not political. And I was, when I was asked to join the podcast, um, Edward and Jay, um, Edward works for the RSI. He's a Baltimore. And Jay's- He's been on the show. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Jay, um, yeah. He, Jay's great also. Jay, um, He's a brewer of beer and also is a chef <laughs> and a podcaster. 
And um, I mean, just ph- phenomenally on the groundwork. I was asked to join a little bit later after they started kind of the ideological, like, or not ideological, but thinking of it, like the, the generation of it, the idea. Um, and I mean, they had just done so much legwork on this and so much prayer went into this. Um, and so you can really feel that in a podcast, like these interviews and these storylines are just like hard hitting stuff. I mean, they, to me, it ranks with like some, a lot of the secular podcasts that again, have this, this American life feel, uh, in terms of its quality, you can go back to this over and over. And that's one of the things too, I like about it. You know, some podcasts are about meeting a moment, right? Like in this, this discussion about race that we're currently in, in our society, a lot of people are putting out podcasts, content that's really just meant to like kind of just be quick stuff to digest as you're like thinking through. But this is really more something that's like a historical, it goes through like, you can go back to it over and over and you really feel like you're not just getting an encapsulation of a moment, but you're getting this breath of an actual community and seeing how a community changes over generations and also how that connects to where we're at today. So, um, yeah. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Yeah. I think, look, but the, the, the whole, this American life thing too, you know, don't even get me started on qualitatively what our Catholic media needs to, (laughs) needs to become. But I think looking at some of those secular models and saying, you know, what, what has made these things successful and then not trying to replicate, but using the learnings, right. And creating things that obviously have some uh, quality that makes them engaging, et cetera, which this narrative podcast does that's a good thing, right? That's not a bad thing. Like to look out and, and by the way, that's another part of our Christian history is like baptizing stuff that wasn't Christian to begin with, yeah. right? So I think that's another reason why I think the project is so cool. And, you know, I encourage everybody to uh, to listen to it. Um, are you thinking about multiple seasons? Like how are you envisioning what you do with it now that this initial run has concluded? Yeah. So I know, um, you know, right now, uh, so Balthazar Media is Edward and Jay right now. And, um, you know, I know that we, so if you listen to the last episode of the podcast, uh, we're doing interviews with a bunch of Catholics um, and you only get little snippets of those. And we have Bishop Raxton, who was, uh, he wrote a lot. We did it. I did like an hour plus interview with him. We have Father Josh Johnson on there. um, Chanel Shaw, Shannon Schmidt. Um, Nathan Crankfield, um, Gloria Purvis. Uh, we have a, a lot of people on there. And we we got into some really great stuff that is not on the last episode. I mean, and that was another critique we got <laughs> um, because some things were are cut in such a way that it's not like a misinterpretation, but you you may want to hear more about like, what are they, what, what is this, like, what was this conversation coming from? Like, what was happening with it? And so um, we actually are, there's a plan to release the full length episodes of those just interviews with people, which you'll really hear nice. a lot of people get into like their feelings around 2020, um, around George Floyd situation, around where the church should go, racism, Bishop Braxton. I mean, he just goes, I mean, and he's written so much on this that hearing him talk about it, like you, it's, it's very beautiful to just hear his kind of perspective, like perspective as a bishop and someone who's kind of been in these circles and these meetings and seen a lot of generations as well as it means the black experience in general. Um, so we, we will have that coming through in the feed. Um, so definitely subscribe because you can get those full length interviews. We will get like a lot of awesome content continuing and you'll hear how we do have a lot of diverse views. Like we did not just kind of talk to a bunch of people from the same area or with the same views. You'll hear people who have radically different views on the same issues in the, in that feed. And so that's kind of the next step for this. And I know that there's other projects that Edward and Jay are looking at doing and 
um, and kind of in prayer about right now. But they spent so much time on this podcast <laughs> that it's like it was a deep investment. I, I mean, again, on the ground interviews, like actually going to these places. And so it's going to be a big investment on the next project. Yeah. Edward Herrera, for those folks listening, was on the show probably about, I want to say maybe six, seven months ago. I don't know what number it was. Maybe we'll include a link in the show notes, but he actually talked about this then. Oh, right? yeah. talked about it was maybe, yeah, it was maybe a, maybe a few months out from you guys releasing mm-hmm. it. Um, and in fact, he mentioned you and, and that's, he was a point of connection to get you on the show. Mm-hmm. Look, I think it's, um, it's super good you know, what you're doing, because part of the experience and having people cross these boundaries is storytelling right? and helping people to do that via, you know, the spoken word and video and a bunch of different things. And so, cause that has this sort of evangelical quality where you don't have to necessarily be talking for it to be effective, right? It's just out there. And I think that that's a big part of it. And, you know, I'd say we need like a half dozen more series of this, yeah. right? So uh, so I encourage you and Edward and the whole team to, you know, continue to put put this stuff out um, and certainly would encourage anybody listening to this show to uh, to avail themselves of the Ark and Dove podcast. It's really, really good. And again, not the kind of stuff you're going to be hearing in, you know, most uh, most Catholic media. So it's definitely worthwhile. It, it, it also could be cool in um, kind of formation and other settings, right, to like a young adult setting or whatever to use this as a, as a companion to that kind of experience, you know, maybe even assign it as kind of homework for small group discussions and things like that. Like, so, you know, and, and I know cause I have a, a number of people who are involved in ministry who listen to this show. So I'm talking to you specifically, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, check, check it out in that way. Yeah. And um, uh, Bishop Braxton actually, when he was responding to, I can't remember when he put out his document, but he put out a document, um, might have been after Michael Brown's situation. He probably a document, and in the document, he goes through like a small group model of like how to kind of engage in these things. And I think those small group models are really important. And I think listening to this podcast as a part of a small group, or maybe you already have a Bible study or a young adult group that meets and wants to kind of just have a conversation. I think just listening to it and really letting people authentically share how they feel is so important. And just saying like, how is this? How do you feel about this? And that's what Bishop Braxton also mm. recommends. Like. Just how do you really feel about this? Like, let's let's ha- hear these stories and hear these things. How does it impact you? And people who are you know skilled in facilitation and in theology and ministry know how to make these groups and pull out like your authentic feelings and then bring it back to the gospel. Like, what is the gospel call of this? Like, what is hearing this story? Like, there's one story in the podcast. Um, uh, we focus on uh, a whole community and like kind of how a community changed over time. Then we focus on a church in that community, particularly, and how that changed when the community changed. And there's one situation where um, African-Americans start to integrate into a community that was not African-American in the past. And you hear this interaction that this woman had, and this is actually a real person, you can hear her actual experience, where a priest mm. told her family that they needed to sit in the back of the church. Um, and, Stop. And yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. And, you, and the, the thing about the priest too is like, he was like trying to convince them that it was like good for them. Like almost like, oh, well, there's more space back here. And like, I know you have a lot of people that you come with and like, you don't really need to sit up. There. It's like, it's just so like, uh, it's just, it, it, in the fact, again, you're encountering these stories. These are not ideology. These are people's actual experiences. And just like reflect on like, what is that? Like the, the wounds that that person must, must have felt. And they're still deeply faithful to the church. Like they still go to that same church. Like that is the dedication. Which is a credit to them. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. And so, but, but the, but anyways, just, and just reflecting on like what, how that, those experiences may have impacted generations. 
I, in my mm. own experience, um, I was doing some work in a place called East St. Louis, heavily, heavily African-American community uh, in Southern Illinois. And um, I was talking to a woman there and she found out I was Catholic. And she was like, you're Catholic? And I was like, oh yeah, I'm like, I'm Catholic. Like, I love talking about it because people are surprised sometimes. Because like you said, very small percentage of African-American. And so um, she's like, the only thing I know about the Catholic church is that my mom tried to give birth in a Catholic hospital and they told her that she couldn't. And that's like, that wow. sticks with people. And now for a lot of people may say like, oh, that's a long uh, yeah. time. Like how, why did that person care about that? Well, Mm-mm. if that hits your family, like, and that's the story you hear about at church and you have no knowledge of their theology or the saints or anything of the sacraments. And all you hear is like, my mom was not able to give birth and had to be shipped to another hospital in order to have a child. Wow. Think about that. experience, And that's a real conversation I've had unprompted. So Anyways, just reflecting on this as a setting and like, think about how could this, how may this have impacted our current discourse on race? Like how have all these things kind of contributed to where we're at today? And how does this, what does this mean for us in having conversations with others and understanding people's perspectives and things like that? Wow. Yeah. Lot to unpack there, my friend. Um, Lewis, I'm going to get you on your way because I know you've got other things to do, people to see, content to make, etc. But before we do... There's no wait what segment this week, by the way, and I'll have to include the boohoo noise. Mm-hmm. So um, we're just going to wrap. But before we do, with all the different things that you've, you've got going on and you talked about a number of them here, how can folks like keep in touch with you? Like how do folks, you know, look at like all the things that you're up to? Is there a site, social handles, things like that? Yeah. So I'm not a super like, uh, I don't have like a website or anything like that. Um, you can look, follow me on Instagram. I, uh, I have a private Instagram, but I actually do like accept a lot of people and, and I share a lot of stuff on there on my stories. A lot of stuff I do, I'll share on there. So you can follow me at Louis Damani. That's L-O-U-I-S-D-A-M-A-N-I on Instagram. Um, that's really the only way to get in touch with me. <laughs> um, in terms of social media, I try not to like get too expansive with social media. And also like not at all bragging, but if you like Google some of the things I've written, um, you can come across a lot of stuff. I've written uh, at a place called America's Future on some political stuff. Oh, yeah. I've written, um, yep. I have some stuff, various places. Um, I also have some poetry that's in America Magazine, some other places. So if you look it up, oh, um, nice. look me up, you can find some stuff there. And I continue to put out stuff at random. Um, and also, very cool. I want to plug a couple organizations that I work with. Yeah. Vagabond Missions, which I mentioned. Um, absolutely phenomenal ministry that they have, relational. If you like what I was talking about with relational stuff, that's what they're doing today in inner city communities all across the United States. You know, Father Josh, they're opening up one at Father Josh's church. I'll be there in October. (laughs) And so I highly recommend uh, checking them out. Um, Before Gethsemane Initiative, which is another organization that I work with, which works on racial reconciliation and and xenophobia issues and things like that, um, all from the heart of the church. Not about the political stuff, not about the polarization, about bringing people together. Check out BGI. Um, we continue to do a great stuff with uh, Catholic ministries and, and colleges and universities. Um, so check us out there. So That's before Gethsemane Initiative. That's correct. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, just want to plug those things and, and check those things out. Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll include that um, in the show notes for this episode. And uh, yeah, look, I think... You summed it up, right? Crossing boundaries for the sake of Christ. We got to look around us and see the world that we're living in in our time and place and recognize that that that, that is a Holy Spirit strategy that's always been true, but maybe more pressing now for where we are mm-hmm. versus some other, you know, period of church history. And we got to always be in the present. So, um, you know, just count on 
our prayers for the prosperity of all this work, of all these different apostolates that you're involved in, and for the increase in the storytelling, which I think moves people's hearts yeah. so that they can then move their bodies into doing um, you know, all of this good work that, that you're about. So real privilege to have you on the show, Lewis. Oh, thank you so much. It was a blessing. This is a great conversation. Awesome. And if you're listening to uh, my voice and Lewis's voice, that means it is time to follow and subscribe to this show. To share this episode, I know you got somebody that's going to benefit from hearing it. I don't have to break down all the different cases or uh, scenarios where this conversation might be beneficial, but you know, you know. So send this show to that person and let them um, get a peek into this amazing work that's being done. And uh, it'll be our privilege to be with you again next week on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.